director of the Planet Super League. Interview with James Atkins, episode 43. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with James Atkins, the chairman of Veritas Environmental Finance and director of Planet Super League, which uses the power football to inspire fans to take action on climate change. From this introduction, you might guess James does more than just trade in carbon emissions. If there is an environmental polyglot, then James is it. From co-founding an organic farm to writing a book for football fans on climate change, he is out there working with businesses and social groups to ensure a positive impact is being made on the environment. In this episode, you'll learn how James moved away from the world of corporate accounting and set up his own consultancy, which over time became Veritas Environmental Finance, an early pioneer in emission trading credits. Within this interview, you'll also learn the softer side of why and how a business makes adjustments based on changing needs and regulations. Essentially, we have a story of a startup learning and then copying how to break into the world of global emissions trading, learning by doing. Something that's quite interesting since when they started it, it didn't exist. James is a true environmental leader, and I have to say a well-read one. He was dropping off about 50 books about the environment and climate change, so I grabbed him for an interview. As you'll hear, his message and activities span from the UK all the way to Romania. And as you'll learn, he's got a range of projects going on, like a certification scheme for rewilding solar farms in the UK to a cellulose collective in Romania. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. The interview with James delivers on this point. And now for this week's episode. I'd like to welcome onto the podcast James Atkins to the My Energy 2050 podcast. James has lots of experience as we'll talk about, but right now he is um, the founder of Vertus founder of, of Veritas Environmental Finance, and it was founded in 1998. And he has a range of other interests and other, I would say, initiatives, companies that he's started over the past 20 years, really, and all that we're going to get into. So James, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Hi. <laughs> and uh, I, first, as a, as a note, we're sharing the heat from my chair up, Kaiha. <laughs> I, I want to say welcome and powered by gas from russia at the moment yes convertible to wood eventually yes i think it was wood burning and then originally yeah in the 1960s looking at the unit they put the gas unit in so anyway you got lots of trees outside that you can harvest in when when the gas is cut yeah then 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 we start cutting the trees so my my first question to you james is uh, in 1998, the thing is, you had like this kind of normal career at the beginning from 1990 to 1998. Uh, you worked for Arthur Anderson, you worked for Deloitte, and then in 98, you started Veritas, uh, Veritas Environmental Finance. And my qu- first question is, what motivated you to kind of start on your own, and what did you see at that time? I think there were two things. So one is that I 
I'd always been interested in environmental things. I say always, I mean, since teenagers in nature and keen on getting people at school and college to do recycling, like in the early and, well, late 80s, I guess, um, and uh, mid to late 80s. And uh, so that was an interest that had been with me. And um, certainly since university, it was clear to me that I wanted to work in in the environmental sector, which didn't really exist then. There was there were waste management companies, and I guess there were water companies, and there'd been water privatization, but there wasn't much talk of renewable energy at all. And so, I um I thought that my career would be working in waste management at the time. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing I was working with Deloitte in corporate finance in Budapest. And I just thought, all this slogging away and you're privatizing banks and things, um, it wasn't really that uplifting. And um, I thought, a lot of money's being made, but I'm not actually getting much of a share of this. I thought, if I do it on my own, perhaps I'll get a bigger share of it. So I, I um, started out, it was actually called Rochester Financial Advisory at the beginning, and then it changed its name to Virtus. And I started out trying to do corporate finance deals or, well, raising capital and M&A um, on a very small scale for companies in the environmental space. Um, and I got a break because I helped a wastewater engineering company raise capital and sell some of their shares to a, a regional um, recently established um, environmental investment fund. And uh, yeah, I took it from there. Um, and then there was another important break where um, I kind of realized that this M&A stuff wasn't really for me and capital raising and things because you have to be a real hustler to do that and that wasn't me. And I stumbled up across the Kyoto Protocol, which had been recently agreed, I think 1997. And um, I just thought, oh, there must be opportunity there. And so I started to focus on opportunities around Kyoto. And that was when I met Paul Bodnar, who was a recently graduated American-Hungarian. And his dad had been a client of mine. And um, Paul helped me build a business around emission trading. And um, he then went on to have an amazing stellar career in, environment, in climate finance. Um, he's now the head of, the head of um, sustainable investment at BlackRock, something like that. So he... You you trained him more or less. Well, I taught <laughs> I taught him how to use Excel. <laughs> okay, I think that was about it. He taught me about how to think clearly about things. So this is early two thousand, mainly once things started yeah. going. And what was the, I don't know, the sector like? Was there much interest in? I think people thought we were quite eccentric. We would go to companies that were doing projects to make their energy plant more efficient. Now, um, there were projects which were 
with retrospect a bit misguided about converting coal-fired boilers to biomass-fired boilers. Um, and uh, we tell them about this construct under the Kyoto Protocol, then called joint implementation, where you could um, monetize reductions in, in emissions that you do on an in industrial scale. And um, people were very skeptical, but enough got interested at the thought of kind of free money that we managed to close a couple of deals and build up a practice and a bit of a reputation around it mm -hmm. at the time. So this was sort of 2001, two, three, and then. And then in 2003, I think, or well, 2002, it became um, evident that the European Union was going to introduce the emission trading scheme, which is a completely different structure from the Kyoto Protocol stuff. And so we quickly learned about that and we started advising companies on getting ready for the EU ETS. This was 2003, 2004. And again, they were very, very slow to take it seriously. Most companies say, oh, well, we're not going to spend a penny on this until it's actually in the legislation, which given the process of like a directive and then the directive has to be implemented in the local country. I mean, they left themselves very little time to get ready. Um, but we did consulting around that for a couple of years. And then companies came to and said, well, we've got all these quotas or allowances under ETS. We don't need them. We want to sell them. And so that's how we started to do brokerage in, in, uh, EU allowances. Did you at that time? Did you realize there was too many allowances? Um, that's a good question. Not early on, but by the time the there was this massive fall of, I think it was in um, two thousand six, April or May two thousand six or two thousand. Yeah, I think it was two thousand six because mm -hmm. it was the first year that there was a. Published, they published the actual number of emissions and it was way lower than what people had thought. I think because all the earlier emissions estimates had been overblown. Um, and um, there was a guy in our team who was very smart and he said, you know, we need to be short selling the units. Well, we didn't have the wherewithal to do that, but some, some people managed to do that through sell them, but they made a bit of money. <laughs> we realized that, wow, it's massively over, over um, supplied the market. And so it was oversupplied. And then at that time, did you, I mean, basically then it, it emerges, this is a real market, right? <laughs> so this is like the stock market in, in fact. And did you start positioning yourself differently at, at that point? Um, the thing is that we came into it as, as with a background in consulting and advising. And so none of us actually knew the first thing about brokerage, let alone trading. And all we could do is just copy other people that we saw around and we saw traders start up and we learned how they do it. And we thought, oh, well, Obviously, we need to be doing that rather than consulting. 
And um, there was a point in September 2006 where we figured out what we need to do. And we said, right, we hired a guy, Hungarian chap, who was very, very brainy and young. I think he'd been like a junior chess champion, that kind of thing. And uh, we said to him, right, here's you know, a million forints or something. You need to hire a team and set up a trading desk and get going. That's where the the business of Vertis as it is today really, really got going, September 2000. And uh, on the company side, so you said that these companies were not that interested until the legislation no. came, came in. And and there was a, a very great deal of conservatism among companies um i remember this would be like 2005 2006 when the price was just steadily falling and you knew in theory it would end up at like zero or whatever and you'd have all these polish companies with units on their account worth millions or tens of millions and you say guys you need to sell these because you've got a freebie you're sitting on and if you don't sell it it will evaporate. And no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And uh, you couldn't persuade them. And some smart companies, which were a little bit more progressive in their thinking, realized what was happening and they'd sell their units and pocket the cash. Um, but by gum, there were loads that just sat on the stuff and didn't do anything. Um, there was one very big American company which had a chance to make something like, I don't know, 30, 40 million euros on some swap that you could do. And they were far too skeptical and, you know, it just never happened, something like that. And just lost it. Yeah. But is this, uh, because, yeah, people weren't treating it like a market. Um, or, or I don't mean to, be, like, push this point, but the, the perception of what these trading or these uh, the allocations were seemed to be different from what they could actually do with it. I don't know if it was whether they didn't treat it as a market. I think they just had this blank skepticism about the whole thing. And when you started talking to them, even if you used everyday language, and we really made a thing in Vertis of the, no, don't use jargon, don't use complicated words, just talk to people about this newfangled idea in really everyday language. But, I think it just, it was so different for people and so unusual, particularly with utilities, which didn't work in markets. Um, and I remember, like, again, come back to Poland, great deal of skepticism about this sort of new American idea and blah, blah, blah. And... Uh, it just took ages for them to get comfortable with the idea. And then, of course, they'd have to tell their boss. And that was part of it. You've got a hierarchy. And so a guy finally gets it, sort of the head of environment. And he's got, like, zero credibility in the company. And he's got to go to his boss and explain about emission trading. And the boss isn't taking it seriously because he's got 100 other things to do. And you're just never going to get a decision. That was... Uh -huh. That was stuff that happened, I think. But 
from the European Commission point of view, I mean, this was designed as a as a how do we say it? Like a market, a market, market. Yeah. yeah. So that that would be familiar and easy for companies to understand. Well, um, it was designed to be a market, but that doesn't imply that it's easy to understand if you've not been involved in it before. And I think culturally it was very different. So the culture of energy companies, which were state-owned and there'd be fixed prices and highly regulated, was very different from the culture of a market-based mechanism. And um, uh, so even if you understand the words, if it's culturally strange for you, then you're not going to adopt it so quickly. And I can remember in Poland again and again, they talk about speculation. We're not going to do this because it's speculation. Um, and it's almost like there's a moral, well, I think it was, perhaps it's because it's a strong Catholic country, but there was this moral opprobrium about speculation. Um, and uh, this really held them back from embracing the market. Um, but it may have been a safety mechanism. I mean, no one actually died by not getting involved in, in trading, so um, yeah. it wasn't such a big mistake to be late. <laughs> it's just they missed, missed a bit of opportunity. And and later, say mid two thousand, or that we were talking about mid a little bit later than two thousand tens. It was the second period or so. Yeah. Uh, did the companies kind of figure things out? Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. look, these heathing, these these delays in people getting engaged were um, some of the teething trouble, which is just absolutely natural. In when you bring in a culturally odd fairly complicated system it's going to take a few years to people, people get used to it and it's not just the companies so the governments were quite slow in getting used to the whole process of allocation and making decisions on allocation at the time when it was distributed responsibility was distributed to the member states um and i remember the actual day when allowances were supposed to be given out was I think it was like the last day of February of each year um, but inevitably it would it could be months late oh. um, and then there were technical problems with the system, the registry so there were a bunch of problems which I think just, I think at the time we sort of expected it all to work straight away with hindsight, well, obviously, work straight away. It takes mm-hmm. time for people to get used to stuff. So, but by, by kind of 2008, nine, then it was second nature to a lot of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I'm not quite sure if it's even to this day, but until quite recently, at least, companies were still sort of, um, No, they wouldn't be buying their units regularly. They just sort of buy once a year or something. Ideally, I think you get build it in so much that you're buying shortage units. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, on an ongoing but, basis. Um, yeah, ongoing basis. But but broadly, I think by 
So maybe the uh, beginning, because criticism was there was too much, too many credits available. Yeah. But maybe that actually was a good first step because people needed to get used to the system. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a point. I think there was a, there was a first fe- period, if I remember, 2005 to 8, um, was a softer period. Perhaps there weren't fines or something for non-compliance. I can't remember. Perhaps the fine was quite low. And then it really got serious from 2008 because that was the Kyoto period. Um, and um, oh, and then <clears> there <throat> was another, when the economic crash happened, there was a big slump in the price. And I can't remember the actual details um, or the timing, to be honest. But um, I do remember then the EU started a process of reform. Did it start about 2011 or 12? Yeah, I'm thinking too. And it went on for a number of years. Um, And there was a point where one of the reform measures got got rejected and the price collapsed to about 280 or something. And that was a real rock bottom. I think that might have been about, I don't know, 2011 or 12. And then... Then it sort of stayed in the range of about four or five for quite a few years. And then in the last two years, it's gone wild. It's over 40 or close 60. to 60 now. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, and those companies that maybe we'll just move up to more recent times, those companies that really implemented steps to reduce their carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions, they've, they've done well basically because they could sell their credits well that's the theory yeah Uh if you or rather you just don't have to buy them if you've Mm -hmm. done if your emissions are lower then you don't need to buy as many allowances to comply okay um i mean one of the features of the scheme is that for many years there were free allocations that companies got and that's but that's now being whittled right down um so most companies have to buy allowances. So if they cut their emissions, then they just need to buy fewer allowances. Okay. Um but I think it's it's not I don't think you should imagine it that oh a company has managed to shave its emissions by five or or by three percent so it needs to buy fewer allowances. I think it's more like, right, we're just gonna shut that plant or mm-hmm. um or we're taking this coal fired power plant Line. Like a drastic step, basically. Well, a steps rather uh-huh. than uh-huh. gradual. But the, but the idea is that what companies, at least in theory, companies should invest in new technologies to reduce their emissions. Yeah. And by doing that, they can modernize everything. But it's more that it's not necessarily the same company that makes that that investment. So on renewable energy. You may have an incumbent coal-fired power plant and a completely separate company builds a wind farm, which then means that that coal-fired power plant is no longer viable. Mm -hmm. So the guy who owned the coal-fired power plant hasn't done anything. He just realized he can't make any money anymore, so he shuts the plant down or mothballs it or something. Uh Um, 
So I think there was this image in people's head at the beginning that this is about lots of people making steady incremental reductions. But I think what really happens is just you know, eventually for carbon intensive businesses, the margins get so tight that they just have to either pull out or switch to a completely different technology or they'll just get overtaken by someone who's got a low carbon technology. Okay. But what about what about like a manufacturing company like I don't know automotive or other factories? I'll be very general. Uh that they're, they're producing something but they're buying power from someplace. So they they maybe just their power purchase. Uh, so eventually the power purchase. So what what's happening huge in a huge amount at the moment in industry is industrial companies with long-term power needs are signing power purchase agreements for the supply of renewable energy these you know ppas mm -hmm. so previously they may have had power purchase agreements from suppliers of 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 you know just energy from the grid so it's predominantly fossil fuel energy and now they'll say right we're going to supply 30 or 40 percent of our needs on a long-term contract which is supplied from a renewable facility and that contract also helps the renewable facility get financed so um the again there's no sort of incremental thing it's just like i'm going to switch from grid electricity or I'm going to switch from from um, coal fired to renewable supply okay so these Something like that um maybe more broadly than if we think about the energy transition or how these carbon markets work in reality it's much more yeah just what you said than closing down the old technology and then just implementing the brand new uh, yeah i don't think there's so many situations uh -huh. where you can steadily improve something like you know if you own a steel mill yeah and there's i don't know 1.6 tons of 1.6 tons of co2 per ton of steel or ammonia uh, ammonia factory you can reduce it a little bit by tightening everything up making it run more efficiently right um, but if you put a solar panel on the roof of it, like uh -huh. a yes. factory that's emitting three million tons a year, whatever. Um, so really, the alternative is well, with steel, I guess you can do more and more recycling. Certainly, you don't have to um, process ore. Yeah. Factor, um, but in the end, you just got to switch to a different material. Yeah, find a way of using less steel. Yeah, um, but I don't think you can say, "Oh, we're going to reduce the emissions from this steel factory by two percent every year." Yeah. Um, unless you just cut down the volumes, but even then, a, one of these huge factories has quickly reached a level where it's not viable at a lower level of volume. Mm -hmm. So it's, I think, the big steps rather than incremental reductions.
Okay. And then, um, yeah, maybe we move on a bit on big steps. I, I would really like to get to your book or books. On, uh, for example, you wrote um, the book, um, sorry, the, Climate Change for Football, football fans. fans. Yeah. Yes. And so you've <laughs> so right, gone, be, maybe we talk about more interesting things than emissions, right? Okay. But, but you, you've reached out in some of the other initiatives that you're, you're doing uh, are beyond finance, but really towards, I don't know, people and, I don't know, the environment. Yeah, so I, where this came from is that, that and this is probably already mid to late, 2000 so 2005 six, seven, eight, around then i just saw that the emission trading scheme and the whole kind of technology and industrial approach had limitations and i kept thinking and i started writing about it i still had a blog called the busted um and i wrote a lot of stuff sort of 2005 2010 um just questioning the approach of the UETS. Um, and I think as a mechanism within itself, it's fine, but it's a very, very narrow take on a much bigger systemic problem. And um, whenever I dug into it, I always came to the conclusion that it's, it's a really fundamental thing about how human beings are and what our ambitions are and our aspirations and it's about what's going on inside our heads and inside our families and inside our societies. And I started to see it more and more as being a um, evolutionary, sociological, uh, neural or psychological or even neurological problem. You know, you could reduce it all to this hunger we've got for dopamine and adrenaline and serotonin and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that was where the book about called climate change for football fans um, came from, that I wanted to articulate the limitations of current climate policy, kind of pretty much the same today, 10 years on, um, and look at the broader issues and how you might address those. And I started writing this book and it was so boring <laughs> I needed to find a way to make it a bit more interesting. So I wrote it as a humorous novel. Um in the and it was I created this context of a of a a family, a working class family in Burnley in northern England who were mad keen football fans. And um I housed the discussion and the argument that I had in that context. Mm -hmm. And I mean some copies, but <laughs> the people who read it they enjoyed it. But but your your purpose though in writing the book, I mean it's a huge endeavor to write a book, was to communicate in a different manner and to a different yeah. audience than the people you were working. Well, with. perhaps to the same audience because it was really about climate policy, and even if it's like as funny as Laurel and Hardy, you know, average people on the street aren't going to be interested in climate policy. But at least, so it was for people who were interested in policy, but at least to make it kind of stand out and be a bit more interesting than, than one of these standard books. Do, do, do you think like, uh, yeah, you mentioned things haven't changed that much in 10 years. Ha have they? Or do you think people well, are more aware? You've still got announced, 
I just saw yesterday some headline, you know, we need a global carbon price, right? So that's what people were saying 15 years ago, we need a global carbon price. And I'm sure we do need a global carbon price, but if they think that that's going to solve the problem, then they're wrong. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, in the end, people really, really want the things that give rise to emissions. And they're going to, even if the carbon price is really high, they're going to climb in through the window. And if the window's shut, they're going to come in through the chimney to get what they want. And what, what is that? Well, it's all the convenience and satisfaction and pleasure and gratification that you can get in, in you know, modern society, isn't it? So, so what, transportation like a car? It's like uh, it's like the comfort of of easy things and the thrill of things. All that that's what people want. Uh -huh. um, and so, uh, one approach is to use technology to give them the same thing but have less impact. Um, but uh, I think that's pretty limited that approach mm -hmm. because we've got this thing in our heads where there's an amazing book by a guy called Tibor Skitovsky, who was a Hungarian academic. I mean, by chance, well, I didn't read the book, Hungarian, <laughs> but it's called The Joyless Economy. Uh -huh. And it shows how the modern economy is based on the neurological stuff going on in our heads about, like, dopamine and all that. And... um you get a stimulus and you get a response to that stimulus, right? And you enjoy the response because it's a squirt of dopamine. Or something. And then, so you want it again. But the next time you get the same stimulus, the, the, the nerves are a bit worn out and so you don't get quite the response. So you need a bigger stimulus. And so you get this cycle of, of each time to get the same sensation, you need bigger and bigger stimulus. And that's the sort of underlying mechanism that's behind economic growth. Um, and um, why like people eat more and more or do more and more of things. And so the economy is getting bigger and bigger and more and more exciting and more and more full of thrills and spills. And it's no longer enough to have a camping holiday in Scotland. You need to go to Spain. And it's no longer enough to go to Spain. You need to go skiing in, in I don't know, California or wherever. And then that's not enough. So you need to go to the moon. And there's this escalation. And it's okay if a few people do that escalation because it doesn't have much environmental impact. But the trouble is you've got a few people doing this escalation on this escalation and lots of other people see that and they want it too. So they want more and more and then more and more people see it. So you get this exponential growth and desire for stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and now everyone's got telly and internet. We can see what everyone else is doing. So I think part of dealing with that environmental problems broadly is looking for ways to get out of this, this uh, more complicated.
the uh, circle with this washing machine or something. No, it's like it's like the um um those things that gerbils run around. Yeah, in. yeah, hamster wheel. Hamster or wheel. If it's a yeah. gerbil, a gerbil wheel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh huh. To to get off it to get off it. Yeah. Because we're always uh, chasing after the next big thing, but it's always yeah. there's always and, a next big thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. You can always create one, and even if even if it's all zero carbon, yeah. You still need more resources, so you need more space. So you need to cut down more forests. So you need to drain more land. So it's and that aside from the population problem. But then, but, is there is there a solution to this? Or well, I mean, is it degrowth where we all have to just take the um, decision we're going to consume less? But if it's all based on this neurotransmitter. Um, thinking that we're chasing after more and more and more, then how do we pull back as well, a society? Well, I think, so one of the many, so obviously technologies will help a lot buffer this by making whatever we do less impactful. But at the same time, sure, we have to scale down big parts of the economy. Mm-hmm. And that will mean either lumping it Saying, well, sorry, mate, you just can't do that. Doesn't really get a lot of votes. Or find ways to help people find pleasure in simpler things. And like, there's plenty of people that live very simply and are perfectly happy. So we just have to see what they do and learn from them. Mm-hmm. And they might be in jungles and Amazon. Or they might be monks in Bhutan, or they might be just quiet people living in Birmingham. Yeah. But they're the people we should be following the lead from, not all these people like Elon Musk and stuff. They're taking us in completely the wrong direction. So Instagram is not the way to go. Or Instagram of the Well, it may have some it may have some uses, but I don't see it as being a um the moment in its current way it's not helping us chill out and throw the economy downwards mm-hmm. and one of the uh, initiatives and, and i saw that you were one of the founders of this farm in jambok 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 yeah yeah Jean-Bouc. yeah and is this kind of one of your ideas or and but you're practicing it right maybe you could well, describe what's going so on there i have a friend called matthew hayes and he is a, a very, very experienced organic market gardener, um, an English guy living in Hungary. And when the crash happened, we were talking about what do you do about it. And we agreed that if the shit hits the fan, ultimately you need to be able to produce food for yourself. So we said, why don't we set up a market garden so at least we can wholesome food everything else goes wrong mm-hmm. so Matthew found this few plots town of Jambok which is southeast of Budula and um, what it's an hour and a bit from Budapest and um, yeah we've got um, 
driving organic. It's more than organic because I think, you know, organic gets a bit, can have a bit of a bad name with these sort of Dutch greenhouses that are taking the the rules to the letter rather than spirit. Mm-hmm. But we've got a really deep green thing going on there with with a lot of focus on soil health, rebuilding soil, um, a bit of tree planting, so towards agroforestry mm-hmm. stuff. And Matthew's masterminded this um, with your colleague Logan. Yes. Um, and um, yeah, it's great. We've got a stall at the organic market in Budapest and we also sell a box scheme so families can order a weekly box to be delivered to mm-hmm. you get a variety of, of in-season organic uh, fruit. What, what have you learned by doing this? I mean, you're really engaged in agriculture now, and it must not have been easy because it's organic. So, for example, you said improving the soil health. So by you I mean you're really going back to nature and I would say a much more I don't want to say call it subsistence farming but but it's it's a very basic no it's very sophisticated yeah, yeah. so this kind of farming requires way more brain power mm-hmm. than conventional farming so conventional farming you know obviously there are people doing it in more or less sophisticated ways but it's very brutal it's about um Piling on, I mean, the caricature of it, which is perhaps not fair for lots of farmers, but caricature of conventional farming, you pile on fertilizer and pesticides and herbicides and fungicides. You don't give a shit about the soil. The soil is just a, a physical medium to give the roots some physical support. And then you, uh, you know, you rate the land until it's dead and then well you I guess you move on or something. Um so it's kind of like a really sophisticated version of slash and burn. Mm-hmm. Um whereas regenerative organic agroforestry permaculture, that whole world is is the Farmer is very sophisticated. They have to have a lot of knowledge and a lot of understanding about the um, about the soil, about the plants, about what nutrients they need. Manage that way because you're replicating a lot of nature stuff, but you've got to do it in you so that it's producing what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I think of it as being far higher tech than all this sort of chemical shit that goes on. Um, but if you say ag tech, you know, people think about z- z- drones and satellites and robots and, and enzymes and, I don't know, DNA and stuff. What they should be thinking about is, is the sophisticated knowledge and practices of farming with, with nature. Mm-hmm. But one of the arguments for, we'll just call it high-tech <laughs> agro-farming, is that it feeds a lot more people and we don't have starvation. That's just, a, that's just a myth. So if you look at the 
productivity of a well-run agroforestry enterprise, producing just as much stuff with more resilience and more um, just um, a more variety than one of your monocultures, and it may be in a given year the chemical cocktail produces more output, but in the long run, it definitely won't. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't cause all the side effects. So it's fine if you're producing more corn in the Corn Belt in the state, but if the cost of that is completely fucking up the um, Mexican Gulf, so it's full of dead zones, mm-hmm. well, what's clever about that? Mm-hmm. Stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm involved in a couple of other sustainable food farming things. Um, there's a, a really initiative that I'm involved in. Yeah, so I'm involved in a couple of other interesting um, farming and food initiatives or ventures. One is in um, South yeah, near the Danube Delta, where we're creating a, a company which will manufacture plant-based protein uh, using crops bought from local farmers, so yellow and so forth. Um, and then the there's a big growing market for plant. What's it used for? It's used as a oh, that's ingredient. Right. Mm-hmm. Loads of different food products. Yeah, the peas, the protein, yeah. rather than uh, meat uh-huh, or yeah. whey protein. So, uh-huh. Yeah, um, and uh, we the idea is that we share the profits with the farmers, share the profits of processing with the farmers, on condition that they farm in a nature friendly way. And we've mm-hmm. developed, we've got a methodology, protocol for what that means. But it's kind of a shift from monoculture to um, something closer to organic. another one in the UK as well this, this um for the wilding around solar 
Oh yeah, wild power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, that's I'm kind of moving from an idea to implementation at the moment. Just it sat on the back burner for a while. Just because, but um, the idea is that around solar farms and renewable energy sites, there's quite a bit of land, um, and often that's kind of overmown and and um, managed too intensively unnecessarily and there's growing interest in the uk and elsewhere now for um promoting biodiversity at renewable energy sites so we've created um a biodiversity scorecard as a way for um owners and operators of renewable sites to or particularly solar sites to um, evaluate how much they're doing to promote biodiversity and help them do more to promote biodiversity. And if they reach a certain level, they'll get certification from us that they're a wild power site. Mm-hmm. And they'll be able to sell that wild power energy at a premium to customers who want to know that their electricity is promoting local biodiversity. So not only is it renewable, clean, it's also has this environmental yeah, it's, friendly well, nature around yeah, it. It's, uh-huh. it's um, actually doing extra stuff to help local species, birds, wildflowers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we've got um, a couple of ecologists working with us who are really expert in the field. And together we've created guidelines. Uh-huh. And then we've built a little online tool for um, um, inputting and uploading data to um, uh, the biodiversity scorecard. We're testing that in the field at seven sites now in the south of England. Um, and then we have to, based on our findings, we'll have to upgrade the product a little bit and get it out to uh-huh. renewable companies. And what maybe I go to the motivation of these different initiatives you're doing because what what motivates you? How do these come up, and then how how and why do you get well, involved? How they come up is just you know ideas emerge from all sorts of places, and you hear someone's doing something, and then you think of a tweak on it or a different angle, or um, uh, but why is I think I'm thought about this a bit. Uh, there's something that really riles me or upsets me about injustice to other species. So I can kind of handle injustice to human beings because we're kind of all in it together. But it just seems so unfair when the birds and insects, trees and stuff get um, get a hard time because of are doing because most of what people are doing just seems to be so a lot of what people are doing seems to be so frivolous and and trivial and pointless why should we be killing off thousands and thousands of species so that we can you know, have stuff wrapped up in plastic or whatever or have you know big fat burgers you know, just to 
me it just seems so unjust. So I guess that's what mm-hmm. it's like so unfair that we live these gluttonous lifestyles at the cost of all the other things we do. So these initiatives that you're I, and I call them initiatives, but these are actual businesses and they're generating profits. Or well, hope, hope to, hope one, to. Day. <laughs> one day yeah. with potential. Well, Invertis generates profits, but the the other ones are kind of early stage. Then there's a big one I'm working on at the moment, which I just mentioned, which is Planet Super League. Yeah, can you describe it? Yeah, uh-huh. and that's um, followed from that book I mm. talked about, Climate Change for Football Fans. Um, Planet Super League is using the power of football to try and get people to take action on climate change. We're trying to reach people who aren't normally reached by environmental claims. Um, and uh, the way it works is we run these tournaments where fans sign up to represent their clubs and there are weekly fixtures against other clubs and they score goals by completing green activities. Mm. So around um, plant-based eating, around transport, not taking a car, but bus, walking places, biking, um, around saving energy in the home, um, and also about getting into nature. So we've got a lot of activities, particularly for kids, so that they can get out into nature and learn about nature. Because that, if you create an affinity with nature in an early age, as an adult, the person's more likely to care for the environment. So we use, we've got 51 clubs in the UK who are, supporting um, or venture and uh, we just finished this week is the final week of a big competition or tournament we did called Cup 26 which is kind of Cop 26 um, and there's going to be a big award and stuff at the top award winner of the trophy more people lined up and we also go into schools and and teach kids about um environmental stuff but using the football uh-huh the point. Oh, this is great i mean it's very specific i don't i don't yeah well I'll, I'll say marketing towards this but it's yeah reaching a segment that normally maybe these things would go over and or just they're not Often things aren't targeted at them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that gets back to, maybe I'll bring this around and wrap it up, is gets us back to the first point where um, when you started Veritas at, at the beginning, where people weren't aware of these things. And so in one sense, the Planet Super League has, is a reflection of people that are, are left out of the, this environmental movement and are not targeted, and it's raising the awareness of this, that, that we each, actually, your motivation your, for your different initiatives is that, that we have to actually each do something. So do you hope with the Planet Super League is that people are motivated to understand nature better, and, and doing this through football is a means? Yeah, I think I put awareness and, and knowledge further back. I think Planet Super League is all about doing stuff and um, just enjoying doing 
wholesome stuff or stuff that's good for the planet. And then the awareness springs from that. So I think there's a model where you talk about knowledge and awareness and that leads to action. But Planet Super League, I prefer to think about it. We get people to do stuff. Once they're doing stuff, they feel good about it. Then they build up. Great. So they're learning through action. Kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. James, thank you very much for <clears throat> coming on to the My Energy podcast. And yeah, thank you very much. This was really insightful. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.